Hi, I'm Will Ross. I'm Devin Scott. Today we're talking about a universal problem across every part of the world where people endeavor to make movies. Creating a vibrant, artistically adventurous film community that stands outside the processes and styles associated with big-budget Hollywood fare. Josh Cabrita, a curator and writer on cinema, joins us to take on our home city, Vancouver, as a case study for how creative and institutional stagnation happens and what we can do to counteract it. So, it's everything from local funding bodies to the ravages of late capitalism today. Welcome to Film. All three of us talking here, me, Devin, and our guest Josh, we're Vancouverites. We live in Vancouver, BC. Josh is a film critic and curator based here in Vancouver. Thanks for joining us today, Josh. Hello. We all have our anxiety about the state of our local independent movies. We see a lack of development in style in a lot of ways, some issues in developing and maintaining an active filmmaking community. So this, this is a local issue, but it's something that is probably felt to some degree or another in every independent filmmaking community out there. And we're going to get into its micro and macro causes. Part of why we invited you on the podcast, Josh, is we know you've thought through not just the state of cinema, but the actual environment that leads to the state of cinema more than just about anyone I know. That's really kind of you. Thanks. I'll add to that and say that over the course of four years, I worked for the Vancouver International Film Festival in various capacities. Um, in a few years, directly in the Canadian programming department. So I watched literally hundreds of Canadian films, including ones that no one is likely to ever see beyond the immediate vicinity of certain filmmakers. Um, ah, so you've seen our movies. <laughs> So yeah, in a way, I've had like a privileged view of one particular facet of the Vancouver film industry. And through that one specific viewpoint, I've had access, at least outsider access, to a series of other institutions that are all involved in the production and exhibition of regional films or films that are made in this city. And likewise, you guys as filmmakers also have access or contact with all of these institutions as well. It's just from a different perspective. Yeah, and to, pro to provide some insight onto where Will and I are coming from, we kind of float between a bit like the industry world, the indie world, the kind of more academic critical world. So we have a odd, broad, but maybe shallow overview of these issues. The implications of what we're about to talk about are far more vast <laughs> and all-encompassing than the whole talking about local indie cinema intro might suggest. So feel free to refer to the show notes. We will put everything we refer to in there or, you know, provide some grounding for this because uh, we're going to be talking about, uh, you know, you know, Frederick Jameson may or may not come up. Yeah, I think if this conversation is to have any value, it's really in its faster implications. Like when we're talking about individual films and individual institutions that are involved. I hope that people are able to recognize like some semblance to their own context. So what we're going to be talking about is one specific subset of BC films. And every year, almost without fail, there seem to be a number of these kinds of movies. Maybe it's best just to describe 
uh, the common features of these kinds of movies that we're going to be talking about, which again are really one specific subset of movies that are made in BC. They often have like an American star who's decently well-known, who is like top build and something of the main attraction of the film. Many of them work within a specific genre, but they often, there's an, almost an anxiety about them, about not being new. So they deliberately have formal ticks or narrative diversions that are there to like up and your expectations. But the extent to which they're actually interested in transforming the material is always under question. Yeah. Would you think it would be fair to say that th- the end goal of a lot of these productions is to essentially mimic the look and feel and general structure of a higher budget Hollywood film. That that's exactly it. Yeah. And I want to actually reinforce kind of double down what you're saying here. The, these types of films are probably the fixture of locally directed Vancouver cinema. Um, A lot of these features and short films get made per year and web series too. films that prize a certain quote unquote cinematic. We're going to come back to that in a future episode. Look with all the production value that implies and they apply that to a genre that has a market, a niche and is recognizable to people. Right. There's a David Boardwell quote that I'm going to paraphrase, which is basically talking about an essential difference between like classic cinema, namely like 1940s, 50s Hollywood and contemporary film. And the idea is essentially that if you look at a group of old Westerns, for example, from the outside, they all look exactly the same. But as we know, by watching more of them, the differences between them become more and more pronounced. So like a Ford Western is extremely different from a Hawks Western. But in some ways, what defines uh, many contemporary films, and especially this group of BC films that we're talking about, is that they all brand themselves as uniquely different, that they are all new and groundbreaking. But as as soon as you begin to look closer into each of them, they all begin to look more and more the same. I have like three films that I think are paradigmatic of this kind of BC cinema. And while descriptions of them make them sound extremely different. The like formal traits, the like value system behind the films are all almost identical. Hit me. What are the three? The three would be entanglement freaks and adventures in public school. Uh, Part of my reason for choosing these ones is that they were sort of all BC success stories. All of them were distributed elsewhere. They had decently high profile had theatrical engagements outside of Canada, a couple of festival inclusions. And so if you were to ask someone, like, what are the 10 BC films of the last few years that you're aware of, chances are they will have heard of or maybe even seen these three particular ones. To talk about the films a little more specifically, Entanglement is a kind of romantic comedy about a suicidal man who finds out he has an adopted sister who lived with another family and then seeks her out. Their relationship seems as though it could be potentially more than just a familial one. And then things turn into Fight Club at a certain point. And so (laughs) embedded in this premise, I guess, if we're to go back and link it up to some of the common features we discussed is that like 
yes, it's billed as a romantic comedy. It has like a very approachable lead actor, but there is an anxiety, if you want to put it in that way, of not being new. And so the film deliberately attempts like in its third act to undo the conventions that it is clearly indulging in. And this is almost like a protective covering that all of these films have. They are marketed for a specific audience. They follow the expectations of the genres they are within. They look and feel like cheaper versions of their Hollywood counterparts. The films themselves seem to acknowledge their own lack of novelty. And so put in a twist or two, either formally or narratively, that attempts to disrupt that. And so Entanglement sort of has this embedded in its narrative structure. Mm-hmm. Entanglement, it's a it's a classic blank, but blank genre uh, narrative proposition, right? Fight Club as a romantic comedy. Um, on the other hand, Publics, I, the film has two titles, Public Schooled or Inventors in Public School, depending on when you saw it. I'm going to call it Public Schooled because that's what I know it as. So Public Schooled is less of a kind of cut and dry genre thing like that, but the visual language of that film really strains to not be in line with the genre that it's placed in, right? It's it's kind of a, you know, it's a coming of age comedy, I would say, of sorts. But it's shot like the TV show Mr. Robot. Lots of short siding, multicolored lighting, framing that you would not normally associate with that genre. And that to me is the kind of the twist of that film, so to speak, right? It, it's, it's oh, but this doesn't look like the other films uh, in that genre. Um, I don't know if that's a fair... Uh, totally fair assessment of it. There's the like compositional strangeness of the movie calls attention to itself at every single moment. So while like the narrative of the film pretty well follows the trajectory of a coming of age film where the character is put into all of these new experiences, smoking pot, drinking, sex, Mm -hmm. stuff like that. It's like, while all of this is happening and happening in exactly the way you expect it, the literal framing of the movie is so bizarre and calls attention to its difference. You can very much say a similar thing about Freaks, which has the setup of uh, Lenny Abramson's room. It's about a father played by Emil Hirsch and his little girl who he's kept trapped in the house for the entire seven years of her life. Then one day she sees Bruce Dern, who is an ice cream truck man and wants to venture outside. And at that point, the film sort of shifts and becomes something else entirely, a kind of like sci-fi superhero type thing where the little girl realizes she has these powers that her father has attempted to keep hidden from her. Again, the movie has a kind of subversive hook but it's narrative movements. The trajectory of the thing is all ultimately predetermined. And a- another thing I would note about all of them, and this is perhaps crucial, is that these movies that are made in this tradition are all usually set in a kind of nowhere America. Like I, uh, I once did a Q&A with the filmmaker of Entanglement, and someone asked uh, why there was American money in the movie. And he was genuinely surprised because they had made two cuts of the film where uh, in one cut, there was supposed to be Canadian money used in the other American money. Um, And and it seems as though they sent the wrong DCP to VIF. It's like 
they could be set in any metropolis. The setting remains indistinct throughout, and it could be Vancouver, it could be Seattle, it could be anywhere. To the point where the one thing that tells you where it's set is the money, and even that they tried to pitch their bets on. One thing that I think has become clear to me, uh, once upon a time, I used to think that this was a Vancouver thing. Right, like Vancouver, it was unique in this regard, um, and I think there is merit to that viewpoint in that we Vancouver is in a very unique place. I think in world cinema, in that we are essentially a backlot for Hollywood more than any other city in the world, except Hollywood. That essentially means Vancouver is dominated by this kind of overculture of massively expensive, hundred million dollar, two hundred million dollar Hollywood films coming in and filming here, and most of the people who work in film in Vancouver work on those movies, right, and that leads to essentially a culture of side projects, right? You know, gaffer of, you know, whatever, wants to do something on the side because they, ha- they have a creative need that they want to fulfill. That's great. I mean, more power to them. But if a film culture is of a city is kind of dominated by that mentality, it leads to a certain type of cinema. And that is supported by a lot of mechanisms in Vancouver, and we'll get to those. <laughs> this is really a global thing. I mean, one of the other kind of film cultures I pay more attention to is Polish film culture, because I married into it. And when I talk to people in the Polish film community, word for word, what I've just said, it could be transplanted to places like Wuj, Warsaw, Krakow, and uh, their kind of indie film industries. Um, there's this kind of sense in Poland, for example, and I'm using this as a stand-in for virtually anywhere with a film industry, that, you know, for example, in the late Soviet era in the early 90s, there was a lot of original boundary pushing stuff being made, right? I mean, that's probably most exemplified by someone like Krzysztof Kieslowski. Now you essentially have no more of that. You have a lot of films essentially aping Hollywood norms. And that's kind of what's dominating Polish cinema right now. I can't help but think that this isn't just a Vancouver thing. Vancouver is a place where it is so proximate to Hollywood that the standards are almost inescapable from a lot of people because a lot of people who make these films, the way they make their living when not making these films is working on Hollywood films, right? So they have heavy incentive to reuse their skill sets or reuse their experiences from Hollywood sets and trying to approximate them on their Vancouver films, which are smaller budgeted. The filmmakers making it know that they don't have the budget to replicate how expensive Hollywood films look, right? And how famous their stars are. The solution that's taken to that is to, we can't have a A A-lister star, so we'll bring in someone who's a little bit less famous, well-known from a TV show, but not like a cultural icon per se necessarily. Okay, we can't replicate these massive lighting setups, but we can approximate them in some ways with our budget, you know, like kind of replicate the way Hollywood movies are lit. And then because we can't go all the way with that, we have to distinguish ourselves somewhat. So that's when these self-conscious differentiations come in, right? These little twists that Josh has been mentioning. It's the commodification of a veneer of originality. Yeah. And this is this has proven to be, I think, a surprise problem with the democratization of filmmaking technology is that as these things get flattened out more, it becomes more and more tempting to simply emulate the more expensive or industry, if you want to use that word, way of making films. Uh Uh-huh. Whereas previously, I think, 
the irony was that when it was more difficult to get films into production and just get them out the door and get them looking good at all, it was a bit easier, I think, to stomach as a filmmaker the idea that your movie wasn't going to look like anything that came out of Hollywood. Because just getting it out the door, period, was a tough thing. And that incentivized, I think, a higher degree of like genuine newness, right? Or genuine formal creativity. I just watched um, Thomas Vinterberg's Celebration and I was thinking, would Dogma 95 have happened in the way it did if they had access to like my black, my $1,200 black magic camera that I can emulate to look like 35 mil film? I doubt it. Anyways, back to you, Josh. <laughs> well, I think this is a good point to pivot to something you wrote in 2015 that I think still remains true in large part. You said, for a long time now, VIF, the Vancouver International Film Festival, has seemed to judge regional films by the perceived amount of money that was poured into them and by how closely they mimic Hollywood films. Production value, in quotes, has become a tradition of quality. And I think in 2015, when you wrote this, Will, it was something of a polemic. The At that time, the reigning programming Canadian department really favored these kinds of films to the point of excluding everything else. So there are really notable filmmakers in, in contemporary Canadian cinema that never had a film play at VIF for a long time. People like Kazakh Redwanski, Isaiah Medina, uh, even Kurt Walker's first feature. They were never programmed at VIF. So since 2015, there is a change in programming, a change in prerogative, and it's definitely noticeable in the programs, I would say, but even still you see films like the ones we talked about earlier show up at fifth. All three of them were in the BC section. I think what this indicates is that at one time, for the, the sake of a polemic, we could point to a single institution as the problem. And that because VIF was showing these movies and, and excluding others, they were the brunt of the attack. But what I think has become even clearer, clearer now is that VIF is really just in one party involved in perpetuating the production and exhibition of these kinds of movies. So in order to really understand why this comes about, you can't point at any single institution in the city and say that they are the ones who made things this way, because the, the story is far more complex than that. And I think the best way to understand how this came about is not to look at these films as the product of any individual creator or group of creators. When cinephiles talk about cinema, like they often view things through the sensibility of the individual filmmaker. But auteur theory, as it was originally conceived, was really to talk about how individual filmmakers imprinted their sensibility on an industry that would have purely homogenous products. So implicit in auteur theory was this tension between the industry and the individual sensibility. But when we're talking about these films, the part where the individual sensibility imprints itself on the movie is so fractional. So the, the best way to talk about these films then is to talk about them as a kind of reflection of all of the forces that are around them, as simply like we would any other commodity in the market, because they are just a simple output of what is put into them. This ineffable quality that we would usually ascribe to artworks simply isn't a productive way 
to talk about how these films are made. And so this, I think, requires us to tell a little bit of a story and to imagine what it's like to be someone who wants to be a filmmaker in high school, who goes through the process of like attending a school, making the movie, and then trying to get it exhibited. I think once we go through all of those steps, we can begin to see like how the various institutions interact and how that interaction causes these, these movies to be you know, the raw output. So if we're imagining someone who's going to high school and is deciding on what they want to do post-secondary, I think for many people, the like allure of the film industry is a really like captivating proposition. And in order to understand how this has come about, I think we need to talk a little bit about the like tax credits and governmental incentives that were put in place in the 1990s that brought a lot of film production here, both feature films and American television. And because of this, there is this idea that you can make a career in the arts or as a kind of artist working within this industry. I think unlike some other places, you can genuinely believe that you can go to post-secondary, become trained as a filmmaker or as someone who is involved in the filmmaking process, and that that can be a viable career for you. Of course, what this ideology often leaves out is like the widespread exploitation that ends up happening, right? So even before someone decides that they want to go to school to be involved in the film industry, they have this idea of what it is like to work in that industry. And that has been implanted by the government, by the studios, by the schools that are attempting to recruit young people. I just want to quickly point to a piece that was at The Baffler that was written by Josh Gaber Doyen, which has an excellent analysis of this phenomenon, but in the animation aspect of the film industry in Vancouver. We can link to it in the show notes. Um, and so, People are probably aware of like the exploitation that happened on Sausage Party, the Seth Rogen animated movie. Mm. And the piece does an excellent job of laying out how exactly this could come about. Um, and so it's, it's definitely worth a read. But the, part of the reason why the film industry is held in this esteem is because it's seen as providing green jobs, high paying jobs, but in actuality, this is a far more complex story. So that, that I think, is part of the allure of why people decide to enter the industry, which is like the first step of all of this. So imagining myself still as this imaginary aspiring filmmaker, I have a variety of different schools to choose from in Vancouver. And each one of them have different values that are in some ways responding to the film industry in Vancouver. And so the first option is Vancouver Film School, whose slogan pretty well encapsulates the ideology that I previously described. It is, get a career in entertainment. As I go through these schools, I'm just going to quote their mandates because they make their ideology pretty plain. And it makes it really clear how, they, how these schools interact with the industry. So on VFS website for their one-year education model, 
they describe it as this. Uh, BFF's unique accelerated edu education model balances intensive and industry-led theory with direct production experience. Students are ready to become entertainment and creative media arts professionals in just one year. With award-winning faculty and mentors from top studios and companies, VFS constantly adapts its acclaimed curriculum to meet the evolving demands of the industry. So when you go on the... I used to be involved in some of the tech side of their orientations, and I was always struck by the almost paradoxical nature of what they promise students. It's essentially based on conflating two very separate ways of interacting with movies as a professional. Um, they essentially... Uh, they're training students, in actuality, to become film workers. You work on other people's films and you have the tiniest of creative stakes. At least the vast majority of people do. Um, but they also point to very specific graduates of theirs. They point to Neil Blomkamp, for example. And what they do is they conflate, hey, a thousand of our grads worked on the top 20 films of all time with, hey, also Neil Blomkamp. This sets you on a path where you can become Neil Blomkamp. Exactly. And I, I, a big problem I have with I think most film schools, even film schools that I like, is that I don't think they do a good job of differentiating the fact that uh, unless you're essentially have the luck of a lottery winner, um, you are either going to be a worker in the film industry and probably make a decent living mm -hmm. while being exploited in various ways, probably, or an independent film artist who will almost certainly struggle to make rent. You go on their website... And pretty well the first thing you see under each individual program is a giant graphic that has a list of all of the uh, recent movies that BFS grads worked on. And so mm -hmm. you immediately see like Black Panther, Captain Marvel, Joker, etc., etc. And alongside this graphic, they have a quote that says, Our alumni are truly shaping the industry, having worked on the top entertainment properties of 20." 19, totaling more than 19 billion in worldwide revenue. The, the, the last thing I'll say about VFS is that it's interesting to note how they divide the program. It's like they have one program for makeup artists, another one for sound designers, another for people who want to be directors or producers or what have you. And so the way the program is partitioned is already uh, like funneling people into the industry, right? And so while there's this promise that, you know, you will be able to make multi-million dollar movies when you come out of this school. They're really already preparing you just to be like uh, a worker on a film set. Very far below the line. Yeah. 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 Like the vast majority of people who graduate from VFS started as, you know, uh, basically bottom of the rung, right? And there's nothing necessarily wrong with starting on the bottom. There's also nothing wrong with working in the film industry as a gaffer or as oh, no, someone who works way below the line. That's not the impression I want to give. No. It's what we're what we're I think trying to challenge is this pervasive ideology. What I want is for there to be more acknowledgement and encouragement and support for making movies outside of that apparatus. Right? And that's something that I I was just gonna jump to the second option if you're you know a prospective filmmaker which is capilano university uh, again i will read their mission statement because it really just makes uh, their values plenty plain 
It says, CAPU's School of Motion Picture Arts is dedicated to inspiring and training a new generation of Canadian talent in the film, TV, animation, gaming, and motion picture industries. With enviable studios and state-of-the-art equipment for shooting digital production, costuming, editing, and screening, you'll be empowered to produce original, high-quality work for a worldwide audience. And then later on, they say, with more job openings in Vancouver than talent to fill them, there are unparalleled opportunities for skilled people. So Capilano is a university, unlike Vancouver Film School. Uh, if you are in the uh, like bachelor program, you are required to take other courses. So where Vancouver Film School doesn't really have any theory or history requirements, people who go to Cap do take those courses. They do sort of get a grounding in film history, in film discourse, um, and in addition to the the practical hands-on skills that they also teach. Um, so while they, in their mission statement, make it very clear that they are really churning out people to go work in the industry, they do provide a little bit more than what Vancouver Film School does, in part because they are a university and they have to. Um, what's really interesting about the Capilano program is that each semester, there are only uh, a couple of projects that are made. And in order to be a director on those projects, you have to pitch it to the faculty, they have to approve it. And then all of the other students in your cohort essentially work under you on a film project. And this, this in a way is preparing people for what the film industry is like and makes plenty plain what the university's values are. Namely, that they're preparing the people to make people, they're preparing people to work in the industry and not be a director or someone who is making the creative calls on a film. In laying out these options, I, I want to make it clear that one program is not necessarily better than the other. Mm -hmm. It really depends on your own interests and exactly what you want to get out of the program, right? And the trajectory of the grads of each of these schools is an important part of this discussion. Josh, I'd love to hear uh, your thoughts on kind of connecting that to the incentive structure to kind of go one level up in the metasphere. Um, the wider point you're making is really about um, how these film schools point, essentially point people in a certain direction in terms of how their films interact with the wider creative economy. Right. That's exactly it. And they also function as a kind of like, like a sifting device, right? It's like some people may go to the school, get the program, go through the program and ultimately feel alienated by it, right? Mm -hmm. This is sort of the first stage of vetting, right? It's like they go to the school, they may ultimately decide that this is not what they want to do because it has alienated them in some way and they ultimately decide to leave the industry entirely. And so already, yeah, there is a, a kind of process of exclusion that is happening. And there, there are, I think, plenty of people, plenty of people who have been to these schools who feel this way, right? They thought that they wanted to work in the film industry, but once they got a taste of it just through these schools, they realized that they would rather spend their life doing something else. Mm -hmm. And a last note I'll say on the, the schools is that the, the work that comes out of each of them, which is often like short form work, directly reflects the values of the school and directly reflects the kinds of things that these people 
will eventually go on to make more often than not, I would say. And exactly the ideological position of the institutions are often so strongly reflected in the kinds of work that come out of these various schools. And so there, again, it, it is a kind of process of exclusion because these things are so rigid that someone who went to these one, one of these schools and had a particular vision that didn't coalesce with that institution's ideology, they ultimately won't get to produce the work that they want to make, right? I'd say this even goes as far as things like identity, where um, I, at least I found this, even, I mean, again, I went to SFU, which as far as these film schools go is try, like, I think there's a genuine effort there in consciousness to try and be inclusive when it comes to the type of people that are essentially allowed to make films. And even there, there, you know, I'm, I'm, in, you know, I was into cinematography and, you know, in first year, um, the people in my class who wanted to be cinematographers, actually a quite a wide swath of gender and ethnicity. Fourth year, almost all white guys, <laughs> um, with a certain bro type of demeanor. And I don't exclude myself from that, of course. But t to me, I credit that to this way people approach even even the tradition of cinematography as essentially uh, tied in with things like traditional masculinity, of which, in effect, in practical day-to-day -day life as a cinematographer, it very much is because it's a self-fulfilling thing. Uh, a lot of people who associate traditional cinematography with masculinity practice it, so therefore it excludes people who don't fit into that description. I talked to a lot of graduates who have no idea that alternate methods of filmmaking even exist um, because they're just told this one thing. And that by its very nature excludes people, um, who the very people who may push the medium forward. We mentioned that there's a limited number of people who come out of these film schools and get to make the kind of films they might want to make. How do people get films made then? What, what does it look like for someone to come out of film school? Maybe they work in the industry a little bit, maybe not. And then they get to make a film. What does that tend to look like? How does that happen? What are the permissive structures for that? Right. Often the, the segue people take is, or almost all the time, is through short form work, which is made on no money. And they are largely dependent or are at the mercy of a variety of festivals, both in town and elsewhere. And often, if your film doesn't get into a festival, then you're going to have a really hard time getting funding for your feature project. Um, so I think, so th that again is another hurdle that people have to get over in order to make a feature film project. But let's say our imaginary filmmaker does get over that, gets into a festival like Biff and wants to now make a feature film. There are a variety of different funding sources in Canada. We're fortunate to have numerous government granting organizations that are there to support people who are making their first features. But again, in actuality, all of these institutions have extreme limitations. A few years ago, there really seemed to be a kind of breakthrough that happened. When Matt Johnson was touring with his film Operation Avalanche, he basically used 
uh, every press opportunity to mount a crusade against Telefilm, which in Canada is the main granting organization for mainstream feature films. And Telefilm seemed to take his critiques to heart, and they radically transformed their uh, micro-budget program, which was there to fund first features by people who had made, uh, up until that point, a body of short work. And what that micro-budget program became was called Talent to Watch. So in 2017, Telefilm pledged to support 50 feature projects every year. And around a handful of those would be from BC. And how much money would they give each right. project? Right. So each project gets $125,000 and with the expectation that you can raise another $125,000 through some other means. Big catch. Uh, surprisingly difficult. <laughs> In BC, we're fortunate to have like the BC Arts Council, Creative BC, other bodies that may support a feature film project. But I know from having talked to someone like Ashley McKenzie, who's a filmmaker in Nova Scotia, that additional $125,000 is extremely difficult to raise. Um, and often these filmmakers who live in regions outside of BC where there's even less of an in infrastructure than there is here, they're really challenged to raise that additional money. And often they feel they can make the movie without it. But because of the way the system is set up, uh, it basically requires you to go out and raise that money before you can make your film. Yeah, your movie has to cost $250,000. <laughs> yeah, it's not a necessity. I've read through the regulations because I helped uh, someone apply through VIF. But in, in actuality, they often don't fund the projects that are on the lower end of that, that budget spectrum. Because they, they, they want you to go out and try and find more money. Uh, it's a part of the incentive process. So 2017, they pledged to support 50 features. Uh, a few years later, now we're down to 25 features in all of Canada. And this program is extremely fascinating to me because it started off as something that was countercultural, that was there to to transform the existing structure uh, to accommodate a number of different filmmakers. Three years later, what has essentially happened is all of that transformation that happened has now been undone. There was a, an info session for the Talent to Watch program at Cineworks uh, earlier this year, I believe. Feels like a lifetime ago now. There were numerous filmmakers in the audience who were concerned by the kinds of projects that Talent to Watch was funding. Because the thing, the program was brought into existence to incentivize different kinds of film production. So not the kinds of movies that we were talking about earlier in the episode, where they are essentially trying to recreate Hollywood aesthetics uh, cheaper, because even that requires you to have like a fairly large crew what the program was designed to do is essentially incentivize films that did not require this kind of infrastructure to make. Yeah, incentivize films that didn't need the Hollywood money and had alternative methods of production, right? They didn't have to be made like Hollywood films and they didn't have to look or feel like Hollywood films, yeah. Right. 
but already, three years later, filmmakers were raising their concerns about exactly this happening. And of course, as soon as you start funding projects at $250,000 that can't reasonably made be made for that amount of money, what you end up having is widespread exploitation of the crews who are working and not being paid for their work because the project cannot be reasonably done for that amount of money. And instead of like being happy with funding films that are an alternative to this, they end up just resorting back to what they did previously. And again, this leads to just people having to work very long hours and not being paid for them. The false choice there is kind of revealing, I think, actually. Because a lot of the complaints I hear coming out of that session were essentially framing it as there's not enough money in each of these grants to pay our crews, so we have to underpay our crews. As if the only two options were underpay your crews or have a lot of money. Uh, it's as if the third option of making films that don't need crews um, was not even in consideration. And, you know, I really sympathize with people who are fighting against the exploitation of crews. I think that's a really noble thing. Um, But in this case, um, I I, I got really frustrated by the discourse because, again, again, um, it reflects a lack of, I think, imagination, a lack of um, ability to even consider um, working outside of these pre-existing paradigms as even a possibility. Right. No, that's exactly it. And I hope already you can begin to see how the schools and these funding structures begin to interact and feed into each other. It's like people learn how to make one kind of movie when they go to X school. They go and work in the industry after they graduate, again, making X kind of movie. So when they want to make, when they want to have funding for their own project, they're just going to recreate the structures that they have inherited. So what you end up seeing is like the exploitation that happens on Hollywood film sets in Vancouver or yeah, on production on American productions ends up re- being recreated in the Canadian or local film industry. Why do you think the amount of projects was so drastically cut down? And moreover, why did the projects kind of drift away from that original mission statement to a more uh, consumerist ideal? Part of it has to do with telefilms mandate and the way they operate. Like they are, as an organization, interested in raising their own profile. And so they're not like the BC Arts Council or Canada Council that are artist-driven institutions. Telefilm is very much adjacent to the industry. And the the way the program is laid out is is so that your film can be used as an advertising mechanism for telefilm. So inside the application, they give you $125,000, but they require that you spend a certain amount on marketing your own film. It's like a budget item that is totally inflexible. And part of the application process is to write out what your marketing scheme is for this film. Who do you want to see it? What festivals do you want it to play, etc.? And that's directly, directly disincentivizing unmarketable films. Well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's these, these kinds of transformations become undone because 
you know, they're not deep enough inside the institution. And I guess as an addendum, I will say that this program is obviously not all bad and in fact has been extremely beneficial for Canadian cinema. Like one of the better Canadian movies to come out in the last few years is Heather Young's Murmur, which is a direct result of this this program. And additionally, Jessica Johnson and Ryan Ermacora, who are two of the most exciting BC filmmakers, their first feature is going to be or is funded by by this program. The film isn't done, but it was one of the approved projects. Yes. And so it the the idea behind it of taking money, for example, away from Paul Gross to make Passchendaele or what have you, a Canadian movie that costs millions of dollars. They have redistributed it across numerous regions to first to people making their first feature. This is an extremely valuable idea, right? And the program itself is not bad, but there are limitations to it, right? And so when you hear the ideology from Telefilm about this program, again, you, you sort of have to evaluate it with the actual actions of of that institution, right? So Right. And this is this is where we run into a distinction between because the film schools that we mentioned, the ideology that you read that you can read right on their websites lines up actually pretty closely with their intent and what they end up doing. And when you move into the funding structure stage, though, things become more murky, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in Canada, we have these governmental granting organizations like Telefilm, but then there are corporate um, broadcasting companies that are also involved in the funding of Canadian content, as they call it. So in 1977, the CRTC, which is the regulating body of radio broadcasting in Canada, essentially mandated that that these companies have to contribute a minimum of 5% of their gross annual revenues to the creation and distribution of Canadian content. So what you have is an enormous telecom company like TELUS, which is responsible for like internet, landline phones, etc., being obligated by the government to create a kind of grant for Canadian, and in this case, BC filmmakers. And when you outsource the, the funding of Canadian film productions or BC film productions to a company like TELUS, it is obviously going to take a certain shape. Mm-hmm. And what they have done uh, is establish a kind of granting organization called TELUS Story Hive, which funds projects in BC and Alberta. I'll attempt to describe basically how it works. StoryHive will announce that they have a new intake of X thing. So in one intake, they'll fund documentaries, and another one, web series, and another one, they'll just fund any project. And each intake has a different adjudication process. But one of the markers of the Telus StoryHive system is that they put out these applications and the adjudicating is essentially outsourced to anyone on the internet who wants to vote on the projects. It's literally a popularity contest. Yeah. <laughs> and this doesn't happen in every single case. Like they had an intake for indigenous projects 
again, which is a, a good thing. And obviously, <laughs> they probably felt it wouldn't, it wouldn't be appropriate to have a popularity contest for that. So they had an internal judging system. But for other intakes, it, is, it takes the form of this popularity contest. So most of the work that they end up producing is documentaries and short form work. And they usually have certain aesthetic markers. I don't know if you, either Devin or Will want to describe what some of these projects look like, since you probably have worked on some of them. Uh, I, I've worked on a few, and um, the good stuff does come out of StoryHive. But in general, from what I've observed from the StoryHive stuff that I've seen, there's a real relationship between the branded content community in Vancouver. Brand content is advertisement that essentially takes the form of, you know, uh, what's the word? Legitimate cinema. Uh, so, you know, you have a you have a two-minute documentary about a swimmer. It's for Adidas or whatever. Long story short, they look like commercials a lot of the time and feel like commercials, um, even if they are web series pilots, uh, short films, documentaries. They, ha- they, have, they carry the linguistics of commercials. Another thing I'll add to that is that there is a real phenomenon in Vancouver of webs like or let me rephrase. There is an obsession over web series in Vancouver which really seems to be unique to this region. I mean the reason that there is such an obsession over them is because a granting body like StoryHive or if you don't want to call them a granting body whatever they are has decided that they want to make web series a priority, right? They funded 40 of them in 2019, for example. This becomes like a real option for people, right? And so instead of making a feature film project, they end up making a web series, right? Because they have to conform to that existing structure that is in place. Vancouver International Film Festival is like a venerable festival that that is like the largest film institution in the city that shows the best movies from Cannes, pretty well operates like any other large audience festival. But the BC component in particular is usually on the significantly weaker side. And the fact of the matter is, having seen many of the BC submissions, the choice is often between a project that has high production values and no sensibility, or a project that has low production values and a little bit of the sensibility. And as a, a festival that has its own financial interest at stake, you're often going to choose the former, the films with little sensibility but high production value. Mm. And this is exactly how this, this process like perpetuates itself, right? It's like you have people going to these schools that want to put them in the industry. They internalize a certain method of production. They go work in the industry, which sort of solidifies their thinking and the kinds of films that they want to make. Then they apply for feature film funding, and there's another vetting process there. And then they are submitted, and there's another vetting process that happens. And so in order to explain this phenomenon that we talked about at the very beginning of the episode, we really have to talk about how all of these institutions are interacting because not there is not one single institution that you can point to that is at fault for this right it's it's really pervasive 
And you can't simply lay guilt down as if you were in a court of law, right? And say this one person is guilty for all of this. Um, because it involves all of them to be working in the way that they do to end up shooting out the kinds of movies that we were talking about. And I would go as far as to say that those films are just like a reflection of this process, that they are almost an empty vessel for all of these forces. Um, This doesn't sound much like Oteer theory at all. (laughs) (laughs) But I do think that after a certain point, these kind of empirical judgments, they hit a wall. They can only take you so far, right? It's like you can lay it out as we have here, but really you don't have an essential understanding of how this system is working. And so after a certain point, this becomes a theoretical question. It's like, what logic is permeating at every stage from the education of the filmmaker to the funding of a project to its eventual exhibition? What is that logic that allows all of these institutions to work together so seamlessly? If I were to define what this logic is in like crude terms, I would probably point to like something Frederick Jameson said, which is that the logic of late capitalism, which is a big word to just mean the economy that we now live under, leads to the waning of historicity. And so what he means by the, the by equating these two things, the logic of late capitalism and the waning of historicity, is simply that this economy this like where market forces are left to their own devices leads to a culture industry that essentially produces uh, the same thing over and over again, where nothing new, no formal newness is ever achieved. You can, you can see how this is reflected in the BC films we talked about, right? They're all deliberately modeled on existing things, right? And not really attempting to transform those antecedents in any significant way, right? Do you think they're at least successful examples of postmodernism? Right. I think they, they reflect a certain postmodern condition, which is, again, something Jameson is writing about, is that the words are fancy, but the idea is simple. It's that... The capitalist economy continually pushes out this ideology of novelty. It's like the market always encourages people to produce new things. But when you look at the culture industry under this regime, you see the exact opposite happening. It's like everything is constantly modeled on something else, plainly modeled after it. There is a sense in which everything is derivative from something else, but what we're talking about here is a little bit different than that, right? It's that the thing itself <laughs> aspires to be little other than this other thing that already existed. It is not attempting to transform that tradition in any significant way. So Jameson identifies this as a kind of marker of the late capitalist economy, but he doesn't really say why late capitalism leads to this precise phenomenon. Um, And I think Mark Fisher, who sort of takes off uh, from Jameson, provides a more in-depth account of precisely why this is. And if I were to provide a definition of what 
the like the cultural logic is, I would probably cite this Mark Fisher quote where he says, treating people as if they were intelligent is, we have been led to believe, elitist, whereas treating them as if they are stupid is democratic. It should go without saying that the assault on cultural elitism has gone alongside the aggressive restoration of a material elite. Um, and so at every step in this process, there is an assumption happening about the kinds of movies people want to see, right? It's like the whole system requires this assumption that people are stupid in order to operate. This is simply just like a, an extremely impoverished view of human beings, right? And if you, again, something people always say is like, oh, people don't read, right? They're just unwilling to read. But I mean, the the surest way uh, to make that the case is to simply assume that they don't read, right? And here, there's an assumption about exactly the kinds of movies that people want to see. And and so this, this cycle ends up reproducing itself. Another thing to note is that under these conditions, there is a kind of tremendous irony, which is that these movies that we're talking about are a direct reflection of all the material forces at play. They are just simply empty vessels for these forces, as I said earlier. But then also, the films are completely uh, unbound from the place where they were made, right? It's like you expect that the more diverse a city, the more heterogeneous it is, that the forms emerging from it would be different, right, than others. But what you have under this regime is that the forms are alienated from the place where they came, right? It's like mm -hmm. these forms are inherited from somewhere else, a different time, a different place, and placed on top of our regional cinema, for example. So, of course, it's not at all surprising that these movies that we talked about have nothing to say about any of the issues that are endemic to this region, right? Like, what the, what the hell does Adventures in Public School have to say about Vancouver or Freaks or Entanglement, right? You, you can even um, don't apply even want a, it. <laughs> you can even apply a temporal element to this. What, what do they have to say about this time? Right. right? And, and, and this isn't, like, to say that everything has to be super politically relevant all the time. It's just to say that these movies in no way reflect the region that created them. Right. They don't even want to be set in this place. They find mm -hmm. it a kind of public embarrassment, right, to their marketability. And this is extremely frustrating. Again, going back to Fisher, the question is why does the market, when left to its own devices, lead to this kind of alienation of form, this endless recapitulation of these old conventions? And he provides. Mm -hmm. Two answers. One of them has to do with consumption, the other to do with production. So the consumption one is basically that in the times that we live, people are super overworked, overstimulated constantly, that when they have time to actually like sit down and watch a film, they're already from their work life so plugged in, right? So constantly having to deal with all these things at once or more precisely, like having to multitask all the time, that when they want to watch something, they, they simply just want something that they can consume easily that is familiar to them, right? And I mean, we all to, a, to an extent understand this impulse, right? Mm. It's like after a hard day of work, 
do I want to sit down and watch Satan Tango or whatever, right? It's like you simply Please don't... don't ask me to redefine my paradigm of what a movie can be after a 12 hour day. Yeah. <laughs> and so there is a way in which like the, the material circumstances that people now like face every single day curtails their ability to consume something that is different that requires their attention right and this is also um unequally distributed among classes right i mean if you're if you're you're well off you don't necessarily need to to you don't need to work as much basically so therefore um like this actually brings to mind uh, an anecdote by michael Caine of all people um who noted that he didn't see any working class young actors and he he thought that that would be that that's you know the worst possible thing to happen to acting because if the only people who can afford to put the time in to hone their skills for arts acting are the wealthy then that also incentivizes and influences what stuff gets made yeah exactly that's the first reason for why we see the endless recapitulation of these old forms Mm -hmm. the second it has to do with production and i think it's worth quoting fisher at length who's a beautiful writer and is always super perceptive on these matters. And what he says here is he's writing specifically about the UK context, but he might as well be talking about Vancouver. He writes, neoliberal capitalism has gradually but systematically deprived artists of the resources necessary to produce the new. In the UK, the post-war welfare state and higher education maintenance grants maintenance grants constituted an indirect source of funding for most of the experiments in popular culture between the 1960s and the 80s. The subsequent ideological and practical attack on public services meant that one of the spaces where artists could be sheltered from the pressure to produce something that was immediately successful was severely circumscribed. As public service broadcasting became marketized, there was an increased tendency to turn out cultural productions that resembled what was already successful. I mean, we talked earlier about Tell a Story Hive, which is exactly this, right? A broadcasting company that is mandated or that is obligated to fund pro- projects. And of course, when they, when they are forced to do that, they're going to gravitate towards the kinds of things that have already been successful, right? And again, of course, because artists don't have the the resources or access to other funds that can essentially subsidize their practice, they have less time to make things and less time to essentially like experiment and create something different. And this is such a problem in Vancouver, right? I mean, I imagine you guys live this every single day, right? You have to, you have to work doing other jobs in order to subsidize your own filmmaking. Right. And what he what Fisher has identified is that there was a time where the welfare state provided various programs that could subsidize this through, as he said, like adult higher education, where you could essentially be involved in that and use the funds you receive to thereby subsidize your own artistic practice. Yeah. And I'm I'm incredibly lucky and privileged in a lot of ways. And one of those ways is that I'm able to at least subsidize my work by doing other work, right? So, for example, I pay for my filmmaking habit by doing color on commercials and music videos. And I'm, again, incredibly lucky to have that 
have that privilege. But at the same time, there's this pattern that occurs, right? So many people get into things like, you know, film work, like me, to pay for their artistic expression. But after a while, the incentives to do that film work way overtake any incentive structure to actually express yourself artistically in interesting ways. Um, and you end up just spending your life doing that film work and not actually trying to find new modes of expression that may not have the same financial incentives. And I'd say I know way, way, way more people personally um, who long since gave up on any intention on expressing themselves artistically because there's no incentive. Then I do people who continue to do that despite the incentives. Yeah. To the extent I think uh, certainly I have been able to continue working somewhat happily as a filmmaker, albeit a predominantly unpaid one. I think a lot of that has to do with luck where my work has been recognized, right? It's been shown by bodies and institutions that make me feel good about <laughs> having it seen and that introduce it to an audience. And I'm even somewhat, well, very fortunate that I happen to work with people who, besides actually being enjoyable to work with, which is another, that's a whole different kettle of fish, how miserable it is to work in film, <laughs> in independent <laughs> film for a lot of people, because mm. it's such a Wild West scenario. Even even setting that aside, I'm, I'm very fortunate to work with people who are both nice to work with and who produce work who I admire and produce work that receives some degree of support and recognition so that everyone can kind of sort of figure out a path forward to keep on doing it. Mm. Fisher, given the generation he came from, could really only mourn the loss of what he saw as like a popular modernist movement, which is you could associate with like jungle music in the UK, but equally something like New Hollywood, right? It's kind of modernist movement within popular culture, I guess, as the name implies. What he seems to neglect a bit is any innovations that are capable of uh, occurring on the periphery outside of the main popular culture. One element of Mark Fisher's essay collection, which I should specify, is called Ghost of My Life. He relates, I think, a very interesting anecdote about an Arctic Monkeys music video from 2005 that um, really kind of reflected my own experience. And here's how. So he essentially says there's this Arctic Monkeys music video from 2005. I've forgotten the song name. Um, I didn't. I bet you look good notes. on the dance floor. I bet you look good on the dance floor. That is essentially designed to feel like a mid, mid to mid late 20th century television show recording and yet he notes that the arctic monkeys were not kind of pitched as a retro band they're just pitched as indie rock circa 2005 and the idea he he was kind of getting at there was that because there was no now there's nothing to define the modern world culturally so there's no now through which to reflect retrospection so therefore you could not have a retro band Retro becomes the new new. That really, I think, uh, that rang so true to me because at this point, as a colorist and cinematographer, again, I want to specify that I 
as an enthusiast for doing this, I love doing this, but I have to remain self-aware of the wages of this, is that I'd say, at least in the past three or four years, the vast majority of what I do and I'm asked to do as a film visual designer is to essentially pick a movement or aesthetic associated with a certain time period and a certain place and emulate that using modern tools. This can be 35mm film emulation. Huzzah, I've connected this all to film emulation again. Go me. This can be stuff like production design, lens choice. Um, but so much of what we do in our creative economy now as filmmakers is essentially going, do we want this to look 70s? Do we want this to look like a Robert Altman film from the late 60s? Do we want this to look even like a 90s Dogma 95 film? You know, do we want this to look like, you know, a 40s Hollywood drama, right? That's essentially the palette me and the vast majority of people working in the spheres I do are playing in now. And um, it's not even received as retro. It's just received as, hey, we're using the lessons of the past, which on one hand, I'm like, yeah, that's great. We're actually using historical palettes. On the other hand, it's cultural water treading on a massive scale. And it it's... So I have really mixed feelings about this. <laughs> I don't really have a resolution inside me now, right? I mean, I'm still kind of weirdly in that mode of... I kind of love the idea of you know, uh, emulating film with, uh, with modern computer technologies to stick a fork in the eye of the film fetishists out there. I, st I still love you, you film fetishists. You're great. Keep on fighting the good fight. But I don't know. You can see how conflicted and self-contradictory my, my thoughts are here. The issues we've been talking about and other issues in film at large, whether we're talking on a global scale or regional or strictly local, these issues have been to some degree, and I'm not saying they always have been, but they, it's certainly been a fixture, if not the fixture of my life as a filmmaker has been confronting a lot of these issues and trying to deal with them and trying to figure out how to interface with them as an individual. And one of the major ways to counteract it genuinely is to just find and form a community or join a community locally that you really believe in. And it could be a community of three, four, five people or 20 people, 30 people, whatever, a tiny local nonprofit that does interesting stuff. And it is much more impactful for a single person to involve themselves in some sort of active regular way in that community, even if it's just a monthly screenings at a local nonprofits arts organization, it is much, 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 much more impactful to do that than I think a lot of people realize. They don't have the appeal of being immediately connected to mass culture. And that is a super appealing thing. And I think it's a shiny object that all of us chase to some extent or another to either connect to the moment of mass culture or to in some way generate your own piece of it. But ironically, I think you can make a pretty strong argument that even if you generate a moment of mass culture, it might have actual less long-term positive impact than you being part of that small local collective that puts on a local screening because these mm -hmm. worlds these worlds of film are i think much smaller than 
people often imagine or believe. Mm-hmm. That's another big thing I've learned. <laughs> I think that's a that's a great point, Will. And to really to relate this back to Mark Fisher, I would say one thing he he seemed somewhat incapable of identifying is these kind of small community hubs that can emerge uh, even within mm-hmm. this hellscape. Um, <laughs> he was like an adolescent of Thatcher's Britain. And so he saw over the course of his life, the welfare state being dismantled. And along with that, mm-hmm. um, the like decline of all of these popular modernist movements. Um, and the depression that he so often writes about, I think, is really attached to this loss that he that he experienced. But for people of our generation who didn't live through that, we don't we never had that expectation, right? I mean, the best we can hope for is a kind of therapeutic alternative. And to sort of propose a kind of alternative to the things we we've been talking about, I would point to Kurt Walker's recent film, season one, episode three, which to me is a sort of beautiful, extremely moving encapsulation of what it is like to try and build a community in a place where the infrastructure is actively hostile towards it. It's set in 2016 over the course of one day and overlays two events. So on the one hand, the server of Final Fantasy, what is it? Seven? Eleven. Eleven. The server of Final Fantasy Eleven is being shut down. And so this community that uh, one of the characters in the film had there is being dismantled in real time. As this is happening, there's also a kind of event happening within the local film community in Vancouver. And if you know the context of the making of this film, it's that Kurt in 2016 moved away from Vancouver to New York in part because the conditions were hostile to the kinds of films that he wanted to make. And so the the film is a kind of, it, it sort of mourns the loss of a future that never happened, right? It's about the inability for the kind of popular modernist movements that Fisher was talking about to take hold in a city like Vancouver. But I think instead of just like wallowing in this kind of misery, the film is really an active attempt at proposing an alternative. And the alternative the film proposes is essentially the formation of small communities in which these kinds of works can be distributed and flourish. Like there's a title card towards the end of the film that says it is a film made by and for friends and new friends, um, which sort of encapsulates the spirit of it, right? This this movie is not interested in creating a kind of hegemonic form or in creating a movement. It is simply there to facilitate the flourishing of community, to speak to the people who are receptive to it, who are able to understand it. And so the movie, to people who don't know what happened in 2016, who don't know Kurt, may find it extremely difficult to understand what's happening. And this is because the movie is designed to be received by those who are able and willing to, which is extremely different from the way... It's, it's in fact, the exact opposite of what 
the tradition of quality we talked about earlier, which was there to speak to everyone and no one at the same time. And so uh, I think it's crucial that Kurt's film was first distributed online. And I'll say freely available. Freely available. It has no interest in playing any of the games that the film industry often necessitates. It is simply there to foster and create a community among those who are receptive to it, um, which I think is extraordinarily beautiful given what happened in 2016, which was that many of the filmmakers who lived here who wanted to establish an alternative to the tradition of quality were basically forced to explore other avenues elsewhere. And so they moved to Toronto or New York. Um, this was one year after I wrote that article that you mentioned about VIF. Mm-hmm. And it was it was clear a year later that what we were dreaming of was not at least in the near term coming to pass in Vancouver. It's it's interesting to, to note how, like, I think to those of especially non-Vancouver listeners, non-Canadian listeners especially, I might not be quite clear just how hostile Vancouver is to the type of films, especially people like Kurt want to make. Even even forming a community is difficult because um, we're essentially constantly being drained of the film, very filmmakers who could actuate change here because the pipeline you usually go to, you know, in Vancouver is you make a film in Vancouver, the film gets some notice, you're lucky, instantly you move to Toronto, Montreal, Los Angeles, New York, sometimes Europe. Um, usually one of those places. Very few people actually choose to stay in Vancouver after making some sort of imprint. And that's no coincidence. Um, there are an incredible amount of forces here encouraging you to leave. This is an extremely dour note to end on, and I don't think we have to be <laughs> this negative about the state of the film culture in the city. Um, there have been, over the last few years, a number of strong or promising BC films that have sort of cropped up, popped up as a kind of alternative. Um, and I think Kathleen Hepburn and Elmaya Tailfeathers, The Body Remembers When the World Broke Open, is like a really necessary alternative to the tradition of quality previously talked about. It is probably the most visible BC film of the last 10 years. And it, it demonstrates that it is possible to make that kind of movie in this city and at the scale that it is. Um, and so this, I think, is reason for, for hope. But cautious hope. I, I do want to say, too, that, you know, there's a reason why I'm still in BC and why, Will, you are, too, right? It's, and it's not just complacency. There are really great artists here, and I think there are things to say uh, that are specific to Vancouver, and they do get said. Part of why we have been so, I think, unremittingly brutal in our assessment so far is that I think all three of us are quite invested in at least doing what we can to attempt to maybe nudge the institutions around in a direction that will better enable those voices. And I think that Vancouver also stands as a sort of a cautionary tale to other places uh, when it comes to the omnipresent oppression of, again, to use the term late capitalism, late capitalism, uh, and the effects it can have on otherwise productive voices. I'm a little less optimistic about 
the state of these various institutions, the schools, the funding agencies, the film industry at large, the festivals. Um, I actually don't think they're really capable of being transformed from within. They're too inflexible. They're too entrenched. They have too much power. Really, the only alternative I can see is sort of the ethic that Kurtz Booby proposed, which is essentially taking what we can from these places and attempting to do, you know, to form a community outside of them. In Kurt's film, there is a kind of like art space that was called 333 Clark, where uh, one of the sequences of the film is shot. And at the end of the movie, we return to that space, shuttered, no longer available. And on the one hand, you can interpret this as like a kind of tremendous loss, right? Um, As, you know, simply another place that is lost to gentrification in Vancouver. But I think there is another way to interpret that image, which is essentially that while it was there, we used it. We did what we could with it. Um, And so the ethic the movie proposes is a proactive one. It's like when these institutions afford you an opportunity, you take it. When you can do something outside of them, you do it, right? And recognizing that all of these spaces are ephemeral and that we are all living precariously. But we do what we can with what we have. This may not lead to a kind of complete revolution or the emergence of a popular modernist movement, but it, it, it is enough for our needs at this moment in time, which is, I think, an ethic that I would like to live by. Yeah, uh, Josh, where can we find you online? Oh, branding at josh cabrita on twitter i don't i write infrequently if you want to see what i'm up to that's where to find me josh it's a obviously a complicated subject and can be tough to talk about and it's very easy to fall into despair i appreciate you coming to it with such a breadth of experience and knowledge and an unwillingness to fall into that despair and just bring us a good conversation. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today, everybody. Our associate producer is Paige Smith. If you enjoyed today's podcast, go ahead, you know, go into one of those podcast services, give us a rating, give us a review, help other people find it. If you want to come on the show or if you've got an idea for something we can talk about, we love hearing about that. You can get in touch by email via filmformally at gmail.com or you can find us on social media on Twitter or Facebook at filmformally. We would like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil peoples. Take care of yourself, everybody. See you next time.